Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What if I were to tell you that you could burn every manuscript in existence, that you could destroy every Bible in existence, and you could still show basically almost everything the New Testament says about Jesus by other means? Well, you can do that, and in fact, you can do it in an overwhelming fashion, in my opinion, by looking at my friend Jay Warner Wallace's brand new book about to come out called Person of Interest. This book took well over a year, maybe up to two years to actually research and put together. It's about to come out next month. And before we actually see the release of this book, we've got to give you some insights into it so you'll be ready to get it and ready to hit the deck running with it. It is an amazing work that Jim has put together, Jay Warner Wallace, and he's on the program with me today. Jim, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for even talking about this book. Appreciate it. Oh, uh, Jim, you know, it's you do great work. Now, this book, I think, is your, your most, well, all your work is unique, but this book, nobody else has ever gotten close to doing. What you've essentially done is shown the monumental impact of Jesus that he's had not just on Western culture, but on the world in general, and you lead up to Jesus, and then you see what happened after Jesus, and it's just a phenomenal work. You got over 300 drawings in this book, which is perfect for me, because I like pictures, as you know. And uh, let's start at the beginning. Why did you decide to write this, and how did you go about researching this, Jim? Because the research in here is just unbelievable. Well, okay. So, I mean, I just, the, part of this honestly was just my investigation of Jesus as a, a non-believer. I mean, there's lots of stuff I looked at and, and I was not always impressed with some of the efforts my friends would make to tell me that Christianity was true. And so I needed to kind of deep dive it on my own. And, and this approach is kind of the opposite of cold case Christianity, my first book on Jesus, which really just looks at the stuff that I would call, kind of like say, well, it's in the crime scene, quote unquote. In other words, there were eyewitnesses who wrote about Jesus, made claims about Jesus, and I wanted to test those claims mm-hmm. the way I would test other eyewitnesses. But in addition to that, there was a world that anticipated Jesus and then was deeply impacted by Jesus. That's the stuff that's outside the crime scene. And this is what this is. This is all the other stuff. So the basic premise is that if you were to destroy every New Testament manuscript, just like you said, that you could still, unfortunately, you'd be stuck with Jesus. The amount of <laughs> stuff in history you'd have to destroy yeah. to get rid of Jesus of Nazareth is mind-blowing. And I wanted to show people kind of the nooks and crannies where the Jesus fingerprints are that they might not expect. Because you know, there are I've, there's some good books that I also use as research material um, that describe the impact that Jesus has had. But I wanted to do it in a different way. My, my whole goal here was to say, to show that it's not just that he's had impact. It's that the story of Jesus is so deeply ingrained in that impact that you can reconstruct every detail of the gospel narrative 
from those nooks and crannies of culture. And so I wanted to be able to show that. So in other words, if I was just an investigator on planet Earth in the year 3000, after they had successfully destroyed all the Christian scripture, I'd still be stuck with this nagging um, person of interest called Jesus of Nazareth. Think about uh, uh, a crime scene, a bomb going off, ladies and gentlemen, and that will give you an idea of the approach Jim takes in this book. Jim, you, you, you talk about the fuse, then the explosion and the fallout. Can you unpack that for us? What's that all about? Yeah, I was just talking to a district attorney here in Los Angeles named John Lewin, who's a good friend of mine, who's doing this case called the Robert Durst case right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm getting ready to kind of help him get jump in and help him a little bit with the closing. And, and I was discussing with him this approach we took. I couldn't remember what case we first took it with. But mm -hmm. of course, John remembers everything. So he told me what case it was. And this is a case we had that was a missing person that was a, a wife who was killed by her husband. And, and we didn't have any crime scene because he had reported her as missing. And we bought that story for the first six years. And then eventually we started to investigate it as a, as a crime as a murder. And of course he had moved and they had remodeled the house and there was no evidence for, you know, we didn't have a body. We didn't have any evidence from a crime scene. How do you make that in front of a jury? And how I did it back in those days is I would uh, show them that on, you know, all murders are part of a timeline. And it's not as though these things just happen out of the blue. There's a period of time before the murder and a period of time after the murder. And the day the murder took place, something horrific occurred, a bomb went off. And what we're going to show the jury is that there was a long fuse that was burning toward that rise in hostility, that that all the tension between the couple, and eventually that fuse ended up detonating a bomb. And then after that bomb exploded, there was shrapnel everywhere. We're going to mm. demonstrate to a jury what happened on the day the bomb exploded by simply examining the fuse and the fallout. Because we don't have a crime scene. We don't have anything in that blast. We just have the radius that occurred afterward, the ripples that this caused. I mean, people act differently and give away their anticipated efforts prior to doing something like this, especially if they've planned for a long time. And afterwards, they are impacted. Even the killer is going to act differently, might say things, might get rid of her, his wife's um, property too early, might, you know, there's things you do on the backside that expose your activity on the day of the murder as well. And that's what we have to look at. You know, what did he do before? How has he changed afterwards? And then we can, from that, piece together the details of what happened on the day of the murder. That's what we're doing here. We're simply saying, hey, there was a, a fuse that was burning toward the, uh, the inauguration of the common era. Something happened that broke our calendar and set the new, you know, before the common era into what is now the common era. Or if you want to call it the way we used to, you know, B.C. and A.D., now, the question is, what happened and what was the fuse that was burning? And then afterwards, what does the fallout look like that might tell us about that explosive event that broke our calendars? And that's what we are looking at in Person of Interest. So when you had this case, you didn't have a body, right? There was no crime scene. You couldn't right. find the body of the wife that ultimately uh, you discovered was murdered. And yet you still prove she was murdered without the body, just by looking at the fuse and the fallout? 
Right. And I can tell you that nobody believed <laughs> the, the jury convicted him relatively quickly. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, the, some of the family members didn't believe it. Even the victim's family members didn't want to believe it. They would much rather believe that their, you know, their sister, their daughter, their niece mm-hmm. had just kind of run off and will eventually maybe come back someday. So they didn't want to believe that she was dead. But, you know, once we convicted him at the at the sentencing, this is common sometimes at parole hearings, at sentencing hearings, or just once he realizes the game is up. Uh, they'll tell us where the body is. And so then we can actually conclude the case that we got the right verdict, even though we didn't have a body at the time. And that's kind of what we do. Now, something similar happens here. You can look at nothing but the fuse and fallout of history and draw a reasonable inference about what happened in the first century. But we do actually have somebody who confesses to this in the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. So when you put the two together, it's really hard to to, to deny what's true here. But even without the Gospels, you could still make a reasonable inference. So again, the point here, ladies and gentlemen, is that even if we didn't have the Gospels, even if we didn't have what we call the New Testament, we could reconstruct what happened in the New Testament and many of the teachings of the New Testament even without those documents. And that's what Jim does in the book, Person of Interest. Now, Jim, in the book, you go through six areas where uh, Jesus has impacted uh, our culture. What are those six areas? And maybe we'll get into some of them after the break. Yeah, look at uh, literature, uh, art, music, um, education, science, and other world religions. Now, now clearly, Frank, I could have added, you know, medicine. Right. But I was trying to look at those areas, not just that Jesus had a huge impact on. I'm looking at those areas from which we could also reconstruct the story of Jesus. So I'm looking for what are the areas of culture where there's fingerprints of Jesus that I could actually reconstruct the story. And mm. that was the trick for this book. Mm. I think that's what makes it unique. We're going to see when we get back from the break, one amazing point was Jim discovered paintings that could reconstruct the entire gospel of Mark, for example. We'll talk about it after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamined.org. My guest is cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace. His new book, Person of Interest, is about to be released. We'll tell you how you can pre-order it here in just a minute. Don't go away. Proving Jesus without the Bible. How can that be done, ladies and gentlemen? Well, my friend Jay Warner Wallace has done it. I mean, people have done it before, but not the way Jim does it. You'll see in the brand new book about to come out next month called Person of Interest, how he looks at the sweep of history, not only after Jesus, but even before Jesus, and shows how all of this falls into place in a very dramatic way. And Jim, I just gave him a little teaser before we went into the break about the entire gospel of Mark can be reconstructed by paintings. Now you have a degree in architecture, so you know uh, quite a bit about the arts and all this. Uh, unpack that for us. How, how, how can we how can we get the gospel of Mark in paintings? How, do, how does that happen? Yeah, and it's so hard because so, yeah, you're right. I, I I came up through the arts, and I thought you know I. I, when I took my first life drawing class, it changed the way I saw academia. I was in university and to, and was really kind of like floundering around. What should I What should I do? Mm-hmm. But I took a, an art class just because I had to, you know, as part of the requirements. <laughs> and from that point on, I was an A student. I mean, in every course, because I suddenly had purpose. So I got my bachelor's in design and my master's in architecture. And a lot of it was, was painting, 
I did a lot of painting, um, both oils and acrylics, and, and really enjoyed it. And I'll tell you that um, I'm interested in that kind of stuff, but I never thought about the connection or the impact that Jesus and his followers had on the prog progress of the arts. Um, but if you look at every critical category of arts, every genre of arts, every epic period of art history, and you just remove from those epic periods the masters, the people who defined a genre, who started the fathers and mothers of these genres, you will look and find that all of them, even into modern times, have at some place in their catalog of art, a painting, a sketch, an art, uh, a sculpture, uh, something about Jesus of Nazareth. He has had the singular most impact on the visual arts of any other person in history. And many of these artists were in fact Christ followers who led historically. And even if they're not today, they still got a catalog that involves somehow Jesus of this crucifixion, something of the story of the gospel. So I thought, well, okay, well, how much impact and how early does it start? Now, this is one of the things, Frank, that's hard, right? When you do a book where we have over 400 illustrations, there isn't a single page, and I wanted it to be this way, that doesn't have some graphic element. And that was my biggest desire is to make sure we've got a sidebar, we've got some header, we've got an illustration on every page. Mm. And a lot of that, Frank, came from me out of my experience writing kids' books. So this is like a kids' book for adults. That's kind of right. like part graphic novel and part personal journey and part detective story. Mm -hmm. And in this also, I trace a real case at the beginning of each chapter, and we just make the parallels between the real case, the missing person case, and the missing person of, you know, if we got rid of all the manuscripts for Jesus. But back to your question about how much impact has he had on the arts? Well, so I'm, I'm looking at not just did he have huge impact, which he did, but can you reconstruct the Jesus story from this kind of impact? And it turns out if you just looked at the paintings and wall murals of the first three, four, five hundred uh, years, you can, so I went through that, for example, the Gospel of Mark, and I only used Mark because it's the shortest gospel. Right. It was hard enough to research as it is, right? Uh -huh. But I know you can do this for every other gospel as well. Right. But I went through the gospel. I said, okay, so, you know, when you have those, those header breakings in your gospel where some, you know, editor has put in, this is the next episode in the gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. I went through those and I just made a list of the 50 some odd episodes that, that are in the gospel of Mark. And I started to search to see, and it turns out that every single one of those episodes has been depicted in ancient art forms. So in other mm -hmm. words, if you wanted to get rid of the gospel of Mark, you'd have to do more than get rid of just the text of Mark. You'd have to destroy the 50 locations where there are still ancient depictions of these episodes in the Gospel of Mark. And that is in a very unusual impact. You, For example, you will not find that same impact, let's say, for the episodes of the Buddha or mm. of Krishna, or you won't. This is a, the kind of impact that Jesus of Nazareth has singularly had on visual arts. Um, and so it's just an amazing, you know, when I, and by the way, I, I, I remember as an uh, architecture student, Susie and I visited, you know, Europe in, in I think, 85. And I hate to show my age by saying that, but but so we were we visited, and, and they used to tease me. Her German family would tease me. It seemed like every day all I wanted to do, you know, was one church, one castle, next city. One church, mm -hmm. one castle, next city. I was just trying to visit the, the most staggering art I could find. 
And all of this was constructed by Jesus followers, mm-hmm. even though I never paid attention to that part. I just wanted to see these amazing churches, this right. Baroque architecture, and 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 some of this is really old stuff. And and I was fascinated by the engineering aspect of it and the artistic part of it as well. And all of that stuff is really for many many centuries the leading architects and the leading uh, artists were not just Christ followers, but were driven to do things that were Christ centered. So it's it's amazing the reconstruction. And you can argue this frank oh yeah well of course that's the impact he had on the west untrue you will see that the jesus story is adaptable in a way that is unlike other religious systems so for example if you go across the globe to every place where buddhism is is, is active you will find depictions of the buddha that pretty much look the same but when you um, look at christian art globally it's always contextualized. Jesus will be uh, black or Asian, depending on which country he is being depicted. He is completely conformed to the people group that is depicting him. He's an adaptable savior in that way because the context, you know, you don't have to step into, um, you know, sixth or seventh century Islam. Sometimes you see this in, in countries that are Islamic. They have to step into the mores and customs and, and culture that is really 6th or 7th century, where it's not true for Christianity. Christianity adapts to its context, and artists adapt the Jesus image to their context as well. So this is why he has not just had a Western impact. He's had a global impact on the arts because the Jesus story is so adaptable. And Jim, why... Has Jesus, in your view, had such an impact when there have been other religious figures that predated Jesus? You've got Buddha, you've got uh, Krishna, uh, you've got uh, some right. other people that have yeah big world religions, but they don't have the kind of global impact that Jesus has had. Why is that? Well, of course, that's the big question, right? And that's where, yeah. you, and, and I think that part of it is until you are able to visually see it, and that's why we started to illustrate this, right? And Zonovan yeah. was great about allowing me about a year and a half to create the presentations that mm-hmm. we typically you and I would use in front of an audience. I created those presentations first before I wrote the book because I knew that that, vis- that, that people needed to see this impact. And that's why the book is so heavily illustrated. And that's why it's, it's hard for me sometimes, Frank, to even to talk about this on the radio because I I know that, hey, how, how, unless you can see this, but yeah, the impact is so deep and so entrenched in so many different weird, quirky areas that you would, that you would have unexpected to see someone have this kind of impact that you can't help ask yourself the question, why would this person in history have this kind of impact? Now, ultimately, I would say that, look, it, it, yeah, there's no way you can rationalize the kind of impact that Jesus of Nazareth had, especially when the Buddha and Krishna and Hinduism, all these systems had you know, a huge head start on Christianity. Yet they have not accounted for as much art, for as much impact in education. Universities, for example, you can add up all of the Zoroaster, uh, Hindu, <laughs> Buddhist, Jewish, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, higher education uh, institutions. They will not collectively g- come close to the number of universities started by Christ followers. You're just not going to have that kind of impact. It turns out that this kind of w- global impact is hard to explain if Jesus is just a guy. Right. On the other hand, if Jesus is something more, for example, if, if God really exists and he somehow was to step into his creation, I would expect him to have a huge ripple effect on the very creation that he's responsible for. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense to me, it seems, 
that, that part of this impact is only explainable, it only makes sense given the deity of Christ, that his identity is part of why he has this kind of impact. And there's a connection between identity and impact, and you're seeing it here in the person of Jesus. Well, the impact is, as Jim would say in the book, the fallout from the explosion. Again, we're, we're looking at this from the premise that we don't even have any of the data from the explosion itself. I mean, we do, but we're pretending we don't, right? We're pretending the right. New Testament doesn't exist. And so how do we then explain this character that emerges out of the New Testament and has this impact globally, not just in the West, but globally in these six areas that Jim mentioned earlier? So you mentioned art, Jim. Uh, you have an entire presentation on science. And uh, maybe when we do a program uh, it, when the book comes out in about a month, maybe we'll, we'll cover the science thing. But just give us two minutes on the science issue because there's so many people going, oh, you know, Christians have retarded science. The, the exact opposite is true. Go ahead. Yeah, I know. This is very, very, this is a very common understanding, right? Now, look, I, I actually want to use that whole chapter on science. And again, it's visually robust because I want you to see how right. many people have been in the game historically. But I will tell you that I think that I'm, I'm, my concern is that, you know, Islam was also active in the sciences up until about the early Middle Ages. And they were active in the sciences until, now there's a book out there called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. And so people have speculated as to why their leadership in areas like cosmology, uh, like uh, mathematics, uh, mm -hmm. uh, medicine. They were very active in those three areas, for example. And yet it seems to have come to a close at some point in history. And a lot of that has, what people are surmised, surmised by studying this, has was really re related to the impact of, of Islamic theologians and a view of the Quran that inhibited then any future examination of the natural world that might in some way um, contradict what's in the Quran. What's the point in looking for that if in fact we already know the truth from the Quran? Mm -hmm. If you discover something that was not affirmed by the Quran, we would say that it's not true because the Quran would trump it. So therefore, what's the point in saying? And that view, I wonder, could we take a similar view in the 21st century as Christians? Uh, we have to make sure that our young people know and take the same view that the greats took in the scientific revolution, who saw this exploration of science as a way to examine the natural realm to the glory of God, to find and learn something about the nature of God from his creation, right? Psalm 19, Romans 1. These are things that Christians held to be true. And I just don't want to see us in this. For, sometimes I feel like we've politicized everything, including the sciences. Right. And therefore, we, I don't, we should not shrink from our role of leadership. We have been leading right up until this generation. Mm -hmm. Do not shrink from our role of leadership. Yes, Jesus has had that kind of impact on the sciences. And we want to continue to do that. In fact, Jim, in the book, uh, which is called Person of Interest, listed, I counted. He didn't count them, but I got Jim. You listed 288 disciplines or sub-disciplines of science that have been started by Christians. And we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. The website is crossexamine.org. The website for Jim is coldcasechristianity.com. And when we come out of the break, we're going to give you a way to not only pre-order the book, but get some goodies that come with the pre-ordered book. So don't go anywhere. This week, I'm out 
at Chino Hills, California for the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy with my friend Jim Wallace and many others. Uh, that's a closed event, so you can't be a part of it. But the following week, I'll be out in Southern California as well for Aliso Viejo, or in Aliso Viejo, and that is the Compass Bible Church doing a women's ministry event on the 20th and 21st, and then the morning events on August 22nd. Uh, the two services in the morning, I'll be talking about if God, why evil. So if you're anywhere down there in Southern California, I'd love to see you there. And then the following week, South Valley Community Church up in Gilroy, California. And I'm also doing an event the previous night in San Jose. That'll be on our website. We haven't posted that yet on the uh, 28th, but I'll talk about 10 questions to ask your woke boss. And in San, in San Jose, that's a good place to, to do that uh, presentation. Uh, I actually may be martyred there now that I think about it. But in any event, uh, <laughs> Jim uh, Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace is on the road quite a bit as well. Jim, what do you got coming up? People can see you live. Well, I'll be with you in Chino. Mm -hmm. And then the next week, I'm spending another week with uh, the Samaritan's Purse, uh, counseling and um, chaplaining uh, law enforcement officers who have been injured. Mm -hmm. uh, and we take 10 couples up to Alaska and we give them uh, an amazing week. This is all through Samaritan's Purse. Uh, it's called, now they call this LEAP. It's the Law Enforcement Appreciation Program. Nice. And uh, I've just been lucky enough. We started with Operation Heal Our Patriots. And so I'm just lucky mm -hmm. enough with Susie to be able to go up. And and I, I, I tell you, Frank, it's it's almost, when I go, I feel like we are um, kind of like the 11th couple. Uh, it's almost cathartic for me to go mm -hmm. to be in the presence of other cops and their wives who have experienced similar things. So... So it's a, it's a neat week to do that. And then uh, I've, my public calendar, thank you so much, is on, on your website at crossexamined.org with the D at the end, O-R-G. And uh, you can check out where we'll be uh, after that. Yeah, so Jim's out there. And this new book, Person of Interest, comes out, I think, September 21. Am I right about that, Jim? When is it coming out? Yes, it does. September 21. Yep. But if they want and to so get hopefully it. hopefully a little bit before that. I know I've got, I'm in Ohio, I think on September 15th uh, in, at, at Pettisville. Uh -huh. uh, so for a couple of events, and I think that'll be available by then. So that's our hope anyway. But yeah, but, by the middle of, of, of September, it should be ready. What What's the value of pre-ordering it? Why should people get person of interest now? Well, you know, a lot of it is it. That we try to offer a bunch of goodies, right? And okay. so the, you have to put some limit on that. So we decided to make them a pre-order offer. So what we're doing is we wrote an ebook that will be helpful, I think, a uh, free ebook that goes along with this book. We've got a, a nice, a long, high-def video that we're, um, which actually includes the discussion of science we've been having right now. Mm -hmm. That's also available for free with the uh, with the pre-order. And then we've got Bible inserts. So we're trying to figure out a way. How do we take these visual concepts and turn them into inserts you can put in your Bible. So we've got a set of those as well. And then finally, we've got a private community at our website at coldcasechristianity.com. And we've offered a discount to that. I mean, it's, this, this thing is so ridiculously inexpensive to begin with that it's kind of silly to offer a discount. But but we do have a discount for that private community as well. We've been trying to create something behind a wall that is uncancelable. And we think we've done that. Right. It's like a social media uh, platform mm -hmm. behind the, the wall. So. All right. So where do people go to get the book now? pre-order it. In. So I would just go to personofinterestbook.com. You know, that person okay. of interest title has been yeah. used by movie screenplays uh -huh. and, and series and all of that. It's a title, we, it's a, a term we use a lot in law enforcement, but it's just that personofinterestbook.com. Well, that's another thing. You mentioned movies. Uh, my son and I are coming out with a book in, uh, in March called yes. Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And in reading your book, uh, I noticed that Jesus is 
Jesus is the subject of more movies or more screenplays or the combination thereof than any person in history. And ladies and gentlemen, if you think more people saw Avatar or the Titanic or uh, any Star Wars film or anything like that, if you think those are the top films of all time or what's the other one, uh, Gone with the Wind? No, they're not the top films. Of, what's the top film of all time uh, in terms of people the, seeing it, Jim? The Jesus movie. More, more, more countries, more translations, more languages, and more eyeballs on screen than any other movie in the history of movies. Just the truth. So. And you point all that out in person of interest. Uh, now, Jim, we've been talking a little bit about the fallout. Uh, let's yes. just spend a little bit of time pre previous to Jesus coming. You have uh, chapters in the book called The Fuse and the Fallout. And Jesus, was he the copycat savior? Was he the mistaken Messiah? All this. There's a lot of things leading up to the explosion. And again, we're pretending we don't know what happened at the explosion. Uh, we're just looking at the at the uh, at the fuse and the fallout. What are some of the things that you cover in the book about the fuse? Things that were leading up to Jesus coming. Yeah, that's stuff's the most fascinating to me, and this is one of the things that I've been looking at with other uh, advising other criminal cases because I still get to consult on a bunch of these, and I've really started to try to help them to see that you can actually develop what I call a red zone. Uh, an area where you know something bad's about to happen. All you need to know is something about your suspect and something about your victim. And when you put the data about your suspect and your victim together, you'll see that certain things were starting to build. Certain things were starting to fall into place that allowed him or her to commit the crime. In other words, sometimes there's like precursor stuff you need. If you were going to use, I'm going to use a 22 rifle to do this murder. Well, if you don't have a 22 rifle, you're going to have to go out and buy one. So it turns out that you're going to make some steps toward the commission of the murder. And there's also certain deadlines that you might be trying to make, right? If you think, well, hey, she's only going to be in town for a week and I want to kill her in that week she's in town. Well, now you've got some deadlines. And it turns out you can look at all of the anticipated deadlines and all of the precursors that are necessary. And you can figure out what is that little zone of time of opportunity in which a crime could occur. And that little red zone ends up being dependent upon the nature of your suspect and the nature of your victim. Here's what I mean to say that red zone will sometimes tell us who the suspect is because every person under consideration has a different set of circumstances that would cause the shape of that red zone, the, 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 the starting point and the ending point. Now, it turns out there's lots of conditions of history that lead up to the appearance of Jesus that actually create a red zone of opportunity in which Jesus could appear and have the maximum impact he could possibly have and even have the maximum opportunity to communicate that impact globally. And so I trace three things in the fuse that lead up to the appearance of Jesus that I didn't even realize as I was doing this. And I had some research assistants to help me on some of this because I just knew that, you know, this were going to be a huge body of information we're going to have to collect. For example, on the science fallout, there's a good example of somebody. We, I think we have 950 scientists that we've identified in their impact as Christ followers. Mm -hmm. And all of those awards they won and all those titles you mentioned before the break, I mean, that was something I, was, I knew I was going to need some help on. But what I've examined in the fuse is, that, first of all, the culture. What was happening in the history of governments and cultures leading up to the inauguration of the common era? Like, what, what is happening that is going to point to that little zone there, that little area in which 
we have, you know, the one, two, three CE or AD, right? Like, why, why is this happening there? And then I looked at also the spiritual history of all the people groups who worshiped God and that they've created one mythology or another. How similar are they really to Jesus? Why would they be similar to Jesus? And what does it ha- what's happening with this fuse that's burning that's based on spirituality, you know, a, a views of God? And the third one is that the Jews were making predictions. And I'm not, I'll, Frank, I'm just not a big prophecy guy. I know that that's going to make a lot of people like crazy if, if mm-hmm. I say that. But I, when I was an, uh, an atheist, I would hear people say that, you know, the Old Testament predicted the arrival of Jesus. But as I looked at that data, I was never all that compelled by it. But I'm going to tell you, I've written a chapter in this book where I can show you that this, that even if you were to be skeptical about some of the prophecies of Jesus, there is so much that builds into this fuse that I think creates a red zone that is so tiny, it runs from about 29 BC to about 70 AD, that something is going to happen in that red zone. And sure enough, that just happens to be when the common era begins. And so I think we could have anticipated that something big was going to happen just from the way that history, Mm -hmm. cultural history, spiritual history, and prophetic history was aligning. So that's what I tried to demonstrate in the book. And I didn't even realize that red zone was that tight until I overlaid all of these and said, whoa, this is actually really pretty powerful because it, I mean, we do the same kind of red zoning in criminal trials where we're trying to figure out, show the jury here, here's why it happened when it did. And by the way, you can sometimes tell who did something by when it occurs. And, and that's what we try to do here. You know, something occurs here in the first century and that kind of tells us who's responsible. You know, Jim, the one thing that I think a skeptic might try and rebut regarding this, or at least say uh, this could undermine your entire argument. Yeah, okay, I could see how Jesus could have this impact on the culture in the fallout and all this fuse stuff leading up to it. How, what would you say to somebody who said, look, it's all based on a hoax, right? Look, either he rose from the dead or he didn't. The question is, how could this all happen if he didn't rise from the dead? Is it possible that a group of early followers of Jesus invented this and that just led to the explosion that we see? It wasn't a real explosion, it was an artificial explosion and that led to the fallout. I mean, how do you, how do you rebut somebody who says, yeah, but it's all based on a lie to begin with? Right. Well, I, I bet that if there's people out there who thinks that, that think that God does not exist, uh-huh. that theism in general is false, and Christianity specifically is also false, uh-huh. well, then they're going to argue, I'm, I'm sure, that not just the Jesus story is an invention of humans, but every other story about God is also an invention of humans. Right. Well, then why didn't this happen under Buddha? Why didn't it happen under Krishna? Why didn't it happen under Zoroaster? Why didn't it happen under all the other, which you, I think the most atheists would say, are also equally suspicious and, mm-hmm. and fictitious stories about mm-hmm. God? Mm-hmm. But it turns out, really? So so you're saying this one just got lucky? Or is there something about this narrative of God that, that C.S. Lewis describes it as the one true myth? Right. That distinguishes it from the myths of men that come from their own common experience. And they describe the anticipation, the imagination of humans. Whereas this is the one true story about God that describes what C.S. Lewis says we call real things. 
things that actually occurred. And that is the difference, right? And that's why I say that if that was just just the case that, hey, any invention of of humans could have resulted in this, well, why is it not only, is it only the Jesus story that results in this, but that he even eclipses and eliminates probably a a huge section of prior mythologies that exist, right, in the minds of other cultures. They end up stop worshiping those things. Jesus is, is the one embodiment of every expectation that humans had for thousands of years. And I try to describe this in one chapter of the book. There are like 15 things that the ancients have imagined about the nature of God, which I think are reasonable. Not every group imagines all 15 things. Right. But the clearest personification, it's as if you're right standing there with Paul, is Jesus. He's the one true God. I'm talking to Jay Warner Wallace. His upcoming book just out next month, which you can get early or at least pre-order it, is called Person of Interest. We'll tell you how to do that in just a minute. You're listening. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with Frank Turk and the American Family Radio Network. Website crossexamine.org. Also check out personofinterestbook.com. Back in two minutes. Person of Interest. There's a lot of interest in this book, and there should be, because it is an amazing work that is unprecedented, in my view, about Jesus, the person of interest. Before we get back to Jim Wallace, however, I want to tell you that Clay Jones, Dr. Clay Jones from Biola University, is about to teach an online course called Why Does God Allow Evil? And I don't think there's anybody better on the planet right now to talk about this topic. He has actually a book by that name, and he is going to be teaching why Does God Allow Evil on uh, on OnlineChristianCourses.com. In fact, you can just go to crossexamine.org and click on Online Courses and see it. It starts September 1. If you want to be part of the premium version of this class where you're going to interact with Clay on Zoom sessions, then you need to sign up soon because it fills up quickly. Again, the book or the course is Why Does God Allow Evil? Now, now Jim, you're kind of a, a, a co-professor with Clay at uh, Biola there. What do you know about Clay and, and his work on evil? It's pretty good. Yeah, I, I'm just an adjutant. I mean, I'm just an adjunct professor. I can yeah. tell you that Clay is the real deal. Okay, yeah. so what's great about Clay is that I think he's done probably, like you said, just some of the best work on the problem evil. Not even just that, though. Also on the problem, what we would say of like God being evil, right? Like, right, right, yeah. Because a lot of his work also includes, well, why is why does God um, allow uh, is responsible for the destruction of the Canaanites? Is he responsible sure. for the destruction of the Amalekites? You know, mm-hmm. all this the kind of, the Paul Copan also does some good work on this, too. And they take very different approaches. So what I love about Clay is that he's going to give you, and, and also Clay is really rooted theologically too. A lot of his descriptions of this are going to be grounded. Some of, Sometimes like you, people ask us this question, and I'm, I'm more inclined to give you a, a philosophical mm-hmm. re-explanation. Well, Clay is really good about combining both the philosophical right. and the theological explanations. So if you really want to deep dive and be prepared, I think Clay is, yeah, you're right. He's probably the best. And the best time to deal with the problem of evil is before you are going through it. Absolutely. We say that all the time, right? And afterwards, it's really hard. You need to be held when -hmm. you've experienced evil. But if you can inoculate yourself by thinking well about evil before you encounter, in other words, if it's not in your rearview mirror, but it's through your windshield, Mm -hmm. you're going to do a lot better at surviving um, episodes like that. So that's why I think you, you might think, well, why, why would I take that? Yeah, you need to take that course now because all right. of us are going to experience evil at some point. 
Now, Jim, going back to what we talked about just before the break ended, I asked you the question, could this be all an elaborate hoax? And you said, well, yeah. if it was, why hasn't this happened before? And, I was, and, and you mentioned, uh, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism and some other worldviews. What about Islam? Because Islam is a pretty big competitor to Christianity. How does the influence of Jesus compare to, say, the influence of Muhammad? Well, okay, so a couple of things about that. I think they're really important. Number one is you'll also see the level of impact of a worldview based on the derivative nature of other worldviews that depend on it, that draw from it. And so we have one chapter here in the very end of the book in which we talk about the impact that Jesus has had on other world religions. And you will see that he not only has an impact on every religion that follows him, Islam makes room for Jesus of Nazareth. They have to account for him. They cannot ignore him. They actually embrace him in many ways and call him a prophet of greater stature than Muhammad, right? He also will be with God at the final judgment, judging the living and the dead. This is according to Jesus Islam. Has yeah. Yes, according yes. to Islam. Mm-hmm. He, he, Jesus has an important role to play in Islam. He also has an important role to play in Ahmadiyya uh, Islam. He has an important role to play in the Baha'i faith. He has an important role to play. Even, and not only that, the worldviews that preceded Jesus, once they extend through the calendar, and now here we are in 2020, well, it turns out that Hinduism and Buddhism and other forms of religious expression have now accommodated the person of Jesus in one way or another. Their leaders will venerate Jesus. Um, it will call him a bodhisattva, a, 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 a Buddha-like figure, an enlightened man on his way to Buddhahood. These things are said of Jesus, even though those systems preceded Jesus. It turns out that Jesus has had a huge impact on these other world religions in a way that Islam has not had on world religion. Jesus had that impact. And by the way, then Jesus says, you know, I'm the only way. Mm-hmm. So in other words, everyone kind of points to Jesus, but Jesus never points to anyone else. Jesus says, no, no, I'm the only way. And that's interesting to me, right? So it turns out that Jesus not only has an impact on world history, but he has an impact on spiritual thinkers, those who preceded him and those who follow him in a way that's unique to Jesus of Nazareth. That's why I always say, if you are somebody who's thinking about, well, is there a God and what form of of religion, what form of, 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 of religious expression globally should I even start to look at to see what is true about God? Well, start with Jesus, because it turns out that everyone hat tips Jesus, and Jesus does not hat tip anybody else. And I would start with Jesus. By the way, if you eliminated the New Testament, you would know something about Jesus of Nazareth just from the scriptures and statements of the world religious leaders of all of the other systems. Mm-hmm. And I show in the book what you would know about Jesus from the scripture of non-Christians and from the teachings of the leaders of non-Christian religious systems. It's actually a very robust description of Jesus of Nazareth. You are not going to cobble that view of Muhammad or Islam from other world religions the way you can cobble together a, a, a picture of Jesus from other world religions. What is the difference on how Islam spread in its early years versus how Christianity spread in its early years? Well, and okay, so part of the argument is that all these religions spread the same way by the sword. Mm-hmm. That's how they're spread. But it turns out that's not true for, for Christianity. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there's a history of kind of an ebb and flow. Some uh, emperors were more tolerant. There was a sense of religious tolerance, for example, in the first century that actually helped uh, Christianity get off the ground. But they've always experienced until the uh, edicts of Milan 
in Thessalonica, they experienced a number of kind of cyclical persecutions, restrictions, property restrictions, all kinds of things like that. So it turns out they weren't in a position to expand their, their view by the sword. But I'll tell you what I think is happening today. And you will see that there is a reason why Islam um, it ranks as you know what either number uh, is number two in terms globally right. the number of people who are in Islam and it's predicted to surpass Christianity mm-hmm. in the next fifteen years and it is not based on it, 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 a truth nature or falsity nature it's based on it's not even based on proselytization it's not based on evangelism it's based on biological reproduction Earthly, is that yeah. we as Christians have adopted a secular view of family and of child raising that sees children as a kind of a debit rather than a credit, as a liability rather than a blessing. And we want to limit that liability because, yeah, we can't enjoy our best life now if we got all these debts called children. Mm-hmm. So we have limited our, you'll see that Christians often have adopted the birth rates of the cultures in which they're living, which is not true for Islam largely. Largely, Islam still has have more kids and we are always more likely, that, that, that still today globally, that the best predictor of your worldview is what did your parents hold as their worldview? And so that if you have more kids, you are likely to spread a worldview at a higher rate than if you don't have more kids. And that's what's happening globally today. That's another one of those things that we could actually reverse if we adopted a biblical view of children. The book is called Person of Interest, and Jim, it does come out on September 21. There is so much rich in this book. You personally drew 400 illustrations. I don't know how long that right. took you, but it had to take It took about least. three months, and I'll tell you, uh, someone <laughs> said to me recently, why doesn't it say written and illustrated by Jay Ward? Well, uh-huh. it's just the way that they do these books, right? I mean, if you open the cover inside, it says very some small writing, the illustrations are by Jay Warren and Wallace. But a uh-huh. lot of that was just out of an effort to say, like, how do I— how do I say this if I can't show you? And sometimes it's easier than others. Like some of these right. charts on science, for example, when you see the explosive growth of science, I want you to see the charts. Yeah. Because once you see them, you'll go, well, yeah, that is kind of curious that Jesus happens mm-hmm. to stand at the beginning of a tidal wave of, of scientific exploration. And where, if you think about it historically, Jesus could have appeared anywhere related to that explosion. And by the way, Frank, you know this because you started to look at all those fathers and mothers of, of scientific disciplines. Uh, those, that's a, that, what you said, 280, I didn't even know that, 288 yeah, disciplines. 288. Okay, well, yeah. I'll tell you, that's a that's a shortened number. There's, it's more than that because yeah. for the most part, I am just using the same publicly accessible resources that everybody else has access to. And I will tell you that they are starting to scrub Christian identity from the histories of all of these scientists. So there are a bunch more important scientists who have historically done important work that we don't know that they were Christians because for the most part, um, the, the, the gatekeepers of, of information on the internet have started to scrub their religious identities. But uh, but trust me, if, if you are interested in God, you can still be interested in the sciences. As a matter of fact, these are symbiotic kind of um, explorations. They actually benefit each other. So I always want to encourage young people, stay in the sciences, get in the sciences, lead in the sciences. In fact, I think you pointed out this too, Jim. I don't have the, the quote in front of me, but talking about the universities, you <laughs> It, it, is it Christianity that started universities at a 10 to 1 rate of any other worldview? Is that true? Oh, oh yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. As a matter of fact, if you look at the top 15 universities in the world today, all 15 were initiated and started by Christians. You can look at any marker system you want, any evaluating uh, website you want to look at. The top 15 global universities today 
are all started by Christ followers. And the top 50, the vast majority, are Christian universities. Now, they may not have a Christian identity anymore. No, they, they but, may have gone woke now, but you say if you look at their founding documents, you could basically get the essentials of the faith from them, couldn't you? Absolutely. Their founders yeah. were all Christ followers who wrote about Jesus. You could reconstruct mm -hmm. Jesus just from the campuses where the scriptures and the images of Jesus yeah. still exist. Uh-huh. So yep. yeah, you could. There's no way unless you're willing to tear down all those buildings, destroy all those charters. Another area of culture, you are not going. The fingerprints of Jesus are so robust, you will not erase him, unless you're willing to destroy the history of education. In the name of inclusion, tolerance, and diversity, I think they may just tear all those down, Jim. Now that you mentioned it, all right, Jim, we're That's about right. out of time. Tell people where they can pre-order the book and what do they get if they pre-order it now? Person of interest, where, where do they yeah, get? Yeah, personofinterestbook.com will give you a all free right. video free ebook, uh, Bible inserts, and a discount coupon to our community, I would invite you to join us so we can kind of hang out together. Personofinterestbook.com. Check it out. Jay Warner Wallace, unbelievable book. We're going to have Jim on in about a month and a half when the, when the book actually does release. But you want to get it now. Order it now from personofinterestbook.com. And that'll help also move it up the charts uh, at some of these other places. So check that out. And we will see you back here next week, Lord willing. See you then. I'm Frank Turk.